Psalm 132, verse 8, and then verse 13 and 14. Arise, O Lord, into your rest, you and the ark of your strength. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his habitation. This is my rest forever. Here will I dwell, for I have desired it. Um, What I would like for you to do before you listen to much more of this is to read the entire book of Ephesians and then read Second uh, Chronicles chapters 5, 6, 7 and then read uh, the book of Ezekiel. But since I know you're probably not going to be able to do that, I want you to be prepared to follow up on this with your own study because uh, I, what good is this if you don't get it in, in a form that moves you in a direction of deeper union with Christ and uh, reality flowing through your own life. So if you don't have that in place in your thinking as we get started here, uh, get that firmly set. Uh, we're going to go into some deep waters literally here. And uh, I need you to set yourself to the task of understanding it, of letting the Holy Spirit carry it on with you and speak to you more from it. Because we've been talking about the glory of God, which is the goodness of God exerting itself towards his creation. That's that's one of the definitions of the glory of God. And we spent some time last session talking about Arise to your rest. What what does that mean? Arise to your rest. Well, in 2 Chronicles 5, verse 13 and 14, you have the dedication of Solomon's temple. The temple, as the book of Ephesians tells us, was a precursor or a picture or a symbol of God's ultimate intention for the entire universe, which is that we would become a house built together of living stones, which Peter also refers to. And God was going to come, is going to come, has come, to dwell in us and we become his people and he be our God forever and ever. And this is, this is just the beginning of the unfolding of the purpose of the glory of God for the whole universe and for mankind, individually and corporately. I keep making reference to individual and corporate glory. It says of the dedication of Solomon's temple, as the trumpeters and singers were as one, to make one sound to the Lord. The house was filled with a cloud so that the priests could not stand to minister by reason of that cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house. I'll never forget Bill Reginald, who is not a professional minister by any means. He's an accountant and a banker and a a numbers guy. But Bill said to me one day, uh, he said, you know, the Lord showed me something about that verse. It was very profound. I've never forgotten it. He said, when the glory of the Lord fills the house of the church, the degree that God wants it to, the professional ministers will be overwhelmed to the point that they'll have to get out of the way uh, 
they won't be able to stand. They won't be able to minister because the glory of God has filled the whole house as he intended. And that has stayed with me ever since Bill said it to me. Because uh, that's exactly what God's after. And Bill saying it to me was a perfect example. As I said, Bill's a, a highly professional banker and accountant and numbers guy. He's not a preacher, quote unquote. But he was speaking profound truth about what God intends for the whole church to become. And the day will come and is very fastly approaching when professional ministers who are valid because our job is to perfect the saints, to mature the saints, to teach the saints so that the saints can do the work of the ministry. When the glory of God fills the church, then there'll be no longer a place or need for the professional minister because the whole body of Christ will be doing the work. Well, from chapter 6 on, Uh, chapter 6 and 7. Solomon prays for the house of God to be set apart for the people of Israel as the place they turn to in times of great need or in times of peril or in times when they need to repent. And verse 32 and 33 says, for instance, if a stranger, which is not even a part of Israel, but is from another country, comes to pray here in response to your great name, Then, O Lord, hear from heaven and do according to all that the stranger calls to you for. So that all the people of the earth may know your name and fear you, as does your people Israel, and may know that this house is called by your name. If there is a drought because of sin, if there is captivity by enemies, and then Solomon goes on and begins to list all the various possibilities of disintegration or destruction or evil that may occur because the people have turned away from God. He's sanctifying the temple as the place where if the people turn and truly repent, he says, if you turn, if they turn to you with all their hearts, then hear from heaven and forgive your people who have sinned against you. Then verse 40 and 41 Now, my God, let your eyes be open and let your ears be attentive to the prayer that is made in this place. So arise, O Lord God, into your resting place, you and the ark of your strength. Let your priests, O Lord, be clothed with salvation and let your saints rejoice in your goodness. Now, in chapter 7, when Solomon had made an end of praying, verse one, and th- verse 1 through 3, the fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices. And the glory of the Lord filled the house. And the priests could not enter into the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord had filled the Lord's house. And when the children of Israel saw how the fire came upon the house, They bowed themselves with their faces to the ground upon the pavement and worshiped and praised the Lord. Now, this is significant in that it is the same chapter from which comes verse 14, which we all can quote and we all know so well. If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin 
and will heal their land. And the reason I'm asking you to take the time to read all of this in detail is because there are elements in it and nuances in it that would take too much time for us to try to cover. And I'm afraid it would be tedious for you for me to try to do it on uh, in an audio recording. But you need to get the heart of this. God is saying back to Solomon what Solomon had prayed to him. I will do this. You've asked me to make this a place where if my people call upon my name and humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, that I will hear, I will do that. Now, if this is a a provision of the former covenant, and we now have a a new covenant with better promises, then it is ludicrous not to see that this is a valid biblical truth for us in this present generation and in the face of this present evil. It's not the pagan that is responsible for the disintegration of this nation. It is the people of God who have failed in almost every way we can fail to take responsibility to stand in the gap and make up the hedge so that the land is not destroyed. Now, to try to make this clear, uh, I'm going to come at it from several different directions, but do do you understand that the, the Scripture spends two chapters on the creation of heaven and earth and the universe, and it spends eight or ten chapters on the sanctification of the tabernacle and then the setting apart of the temple, and then the rededication of the temple. There's that many more chapters (laughs) given to the establishing of the existence of the temple of God. Now, that's just in the Old Covenant, or the former covenant. What, What about the revelation of what that temple represents, which we see in the book of Ephesians, which is the New Covenant revelation of the meaning of the church? Well, before we get too far ahead in that, let's answer this question. What what does it mean, arise to your rest, O Lord? That's language that doesn't make sense to us. That's why we tend to get the lyrics messed up in some of our songs about it. We, we will inadvertently change it, arise from your rest. Well, it's a silly, it's a silly meaningless statement. Arising to God's rest is one of the most important principles revealed in Scripture. What does it mean for God to arise to his rest? What did he rest from on the seventh day in the creation? I mean, we think the seventh day is just an addendum to the first six days. I mean, we get these Sunday schoolish little boy, little girl ideas about things, and then we never outgrow them. Well, God worked for six days. He was tired, so he needed the seventh day off. (laughs) That's not what's going on there at all. Obviously, God does not ever need rest in the sense of cessation from activity. And I've even heard sermons about, well, that just shows God doesn't create anymore. All the creating he was ever going to do, he did on the first through the sixth day. Then on the seventh day, he stopped, and he hadn't created anything else since. That's not what Jesus said. Jesus said, my father works and I work to this day. So what does it mean? Why does he say, this is my resting place forever? Here will I dwell, for I have desired it. 
what's it talking about in Hebrews when it says there remains a rest for the people of God, but because of their unbelief, Israel did not enter into that rest. And that we must be prepared not to allow ourselves to fail to enter into our rest also by unbelief. What what does all that mean? I mean, it's pretty important. It's repeated in various forms in all these different scenarios. How about this one? How can you take a yoke upon yourself and still rest? Jesus said, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What's that talking about? Well, there's just one point, I think, if you can grasp it, it'll answer all those questions for you. And it's important that you let those questions be answered. Because it has so much to do with your vision and destiny and purpose, both as individuals and in corporate relationship to the body of Christ. The concept of rest in the Hebrew language, there there are two two different words for the the Shabbat, which we all know. But then there's another word, that refers to the fulfillment of function. The idea here is that the, the six days of creation were preparing for something. All the six days were doing was preparing for the purpose that would be instituted on the seventh day. What was the purpose of the seventh day? Rest. But what does the word rest mean? It doesn't mean cessation of activity. It means proper fulfillment of function. Okay? I won't take the time to turn to all the verses that support that, but for instance, you know that um, Deuteronomy, Joshua, various other places you could turn to where God says, I will give them rest from their enemies, the word is nuach, it has to do with being able to function in the proper order that you were created for. Rest doesn't mean cessation of activity in the sense of just sitting in a corner and doing nothing. Now, of course, keeping the Sabbath does have to do with cessation of activity to some degree, and that's too complicated to get into right now, but the simplest way to understand it is you rest so that you become rested. You Shabbat so you can nuach. You, you, uh, you turn from the activity of your own labors in order to uh, comprehend who you were created to be, what you were created to be in, real, in reference to your creator and therefore you then become a rested person. And so the idea here is that God created the heavens and the earth in day one through six, and then he rested on the seventh day just means he moved into the house that he built. He came into it. He rested in it. Same thing with the tabernacle. Arise to your rest, O Lord. Uh, 
the placement of the uh, Ark of the Covenant, the, the, the mercy seat, which is the throne of God. We'll talk more about that in a minute. The placement of the, of the, the, the throne of God, the, the mercy seat uh, between the cherubim. This is your resting place. What is God looking for? He's looking for a place to be with his people. This is we're always talking about this. God wants to come down and be with you. God wants union with you and with us. It's with you and with us. It's both individual and corporate. Thankfully, because that means he loves all of us, but he loves us individually and wants to relate to us individually and wants you to relate to him both individually and corporately. That's why if you say you love your God and don't love your brother, you're a liar. Uh, This corporateness is interrelational both horizontally and vertically, which brings us into the place of being a house that is being built together for God to come in and inhabit. And that inhabiting of his house is his resting place forever. So this is why, it's, this is why it says, I have greatly desired it. God says, I, I have greatly desired to come and rest at your house. Uh, doesn't mean he needs a nap. It means that he wants you to function in the, the way he created you to function with none of the encumbrances of, uh, of heavy, burdensome pressure that comes from things being out of order, things being outside his divine order, the, the, the things of chaos, the things of hell, the things of destruction and disintegration. That's what he says when he, when he says, Come to me, you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I will give you your proper function. So he says, take my yoke upon you so you can learn from me. Because I'm, I'm gentle and I'm humble and I'm easy to be with. You know, A.W. Tozer says, God is, God is easy to talk to. God's, God's fun to be with if you learn these things. And so, um, for I, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. It's made to fit. It functions correctly, and you can rest when you pull under my yoke. See, you're working, but but it's restful work. And why does he say this is my desire? This is my I've desired to rest here with you forever, because God is man-centered. God is man. Centered. I don't know any other way to say it. The creation was for the purpose of establishing a place for man to dwell. The creation of man was so that he would be God's um, co-regent in rulership over that creation. And eventually, a man will sit on the throne of God with God in the ongoing unfolding rulership of the universe 
And when God wants to fully unite himself with man, he becomes one. He becomes the son of man. And if you look in Ezekiel chapter 43, which is jumping way ahead for now, but you'll see there where he he says, you know, this, and this is the form of a man. He's appearing to Ezekiel in the form of a man. But he says there to Ezekiel, uh, son of man, speaking to Ezekiel, this is the place of my throne and the place for the soles of my feet. This is where I will live among my people forever. The throne, the enthronement is rising to his rest. The enthronement is for three basic reasons. Residence, relationship, and rulership. And he wants to reside with his people, have close relationship with his people, and rule through his people. Not rule necessarily over his people, though he obviously does that by nature of the fact that he's God and we're not. But he wants us to rule alongside him. So this is all about the entire ultimate purpose of God for humanity and for the universe, which is that he intends to have a people for himself who will be his house, his temple, his resting place. And uniting with them, with us, in the unfolding ruling of the universe. Residence, relationship, rulership. God's presence, God's pleasure, God's power. Let's just talk about these three just for a minute. God's residence. John 14, verse 23, he says, If if you keep my word, my Father and I will come to you and we will make our home with you. This is individual because it is a precursor to what he wants to do with everybody universally. Relationship is God's pleasure. The reason he says, I have greatly desired this, I've greatly desired to be enthroned among you is because that's his pleasure. His pleasure is is you. And then number three, the one that I want to spend the most focus on here, God's power, rulership. When he sets himself among his people, then he rules through his people. He says in Psalm 110, I have sent the rod of my authority out of Zion. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Now, this is where we have failed miserably. The the body of Christ has not taken a lot of what Jesus said to us seriously, because if we had, we would have obeyed it. But one of the things that we have failed to do is obviously we failed to be salt and light. And we have tried to uh, make issues out of uh, life and death struggles in the spirit realm and shrunk them down to mere politics. Uh, and once they're on the political level, then it just becomes a tug, and, a tug of war between this group versus that group. 
And so we have not we have not taken seriously the call to be salt and light, and then we want to blame the evil people who don't even know the Lord for just being who they are and what they are. Arise to your rest and be blessed by our praise as we glory in your embrace. That's beautiful lyrics, but we don't do it. We're learning to do it because necessity is driving us to it. This is what always happens. This is why, I mean, why would Solomon pray the prayer he prayed in the dedication of the temple? Uh, Lord, if when your people turn from you, famine arises or there's drought or evil uh, occurs among us, or if we're taken captive by enemies, if we cry to you from this place, please hear us. It's an anticipation of the way humanity just does things. Uh, Even redeemed humanity, even humanity that is in right relationship with God, we seem to have to be driven into the forefront of the battle before we will arise to our rest. See, we have a rest that we are to arise to also, and that's what Hebrews is talking about. And this is what Jesus is talking about when he says, take my yoke upon you. So we're called individually to to take his yoke in order that we might corporately fulfill our calling, which is to rule in the midst of our enemies. How do we rule in the midst of our enemies? We go to the throne. That's our resting place. We are seated with him in heavenly places. He is resting enthroned in his people. And we go there in union with him, and that's where we pray. That's where we practice what Solomon was demonstrating in the setting apart of the temple. We we cry out to God, which is what it means when it says, I've sent the rod of my authority out of Zion. Uh, the rod of his authority is in our mouth. And we extend that rod in faithful, believing prayer in the temple of God, which is in corporate relationship. It says, remember in the, in the temple, uh, when they all were of one voice, when they all re- raised their voice as one, the fire fell. Now, Jesus prayed in John chapter 17, which we looked at last in our last session, Father, that they all may be one, as you, Father, and I are one, so that the world will know that you sent me. This unity of the body of Christ has to come to pass. It doesn't mean that we're all going to agree on secondary doctrines. I I talked about that last time. Don't need to restate it. But maybe I do need to restate it. Because there may be some of you, I don't think there's many in this audience that would have this attitude, but there may be some of you who have a little bit of a twinge of concern when you hear me say, uh, we have to come into unity. And you start thinking of all the different Christians you don't like. Or you start thinking of all the different Christian groups that you could never fellowship with. Uh, you you believe, yeah, they'll go to heaven, but you don't want to really be there with them. If you could just be in a different part of heaven from them, that would be okay. 
Well, that has to be purged out of your heart so that you have one voice with your brothers and sisters. Now, that can't be accomplished in human energy. There's no way in the world we're ever going to come into agreement. That's not the point here. The agreement we come into is with Jesus. We agree with him. See, if I'm agreeing with him and you're agreeing with him, then we're automatically agreeing with each other on the, the issues that Jesus is not super concerned about that we disagree on, that's okay. And believe me, there are some things I think Jesus is not super concerned about. What he's most concerned about is your relationship to him and your relationship with each other. That's what he's concerned about. Now, the glory of God can take care of itself. When the glory diminishes, when the church fails to be salt and light and the world begins to disintegrate, sadly, the church quite often just finds some prophetic chart that it can uh, chart the disintegration onto and say, well, this was all prophesied. This all has to happen exactly just like it is. And so we're just going to wait for the rapture and watch the chart unfold. That's not anything like what we were commanded to do. We were commanded to occupy. We were commanded to be salt and light. We were commanded to rule in the midst of our enemies. We were commanded to rule in this life by Christ Jesus, and we rule by prayer. God seeking for a man or a woman who will stand in the gap and make up the hedge so that he will not have to let the destruction forces of chaos override and flood and destroy everything. He's looking for a man or woman. Always the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth, looking for a man or woman through whom he can show himself strong. How does God show himself strong? By manifesting his glory, which is his goodness, his 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 love, his creative power, his life. Life is the key word here. We'll talk more about that when we get over into Ezekiel, the, the river of life and everywhere it flows. Everything lives. Everything lives. I mean, look at the forces we're up against. We're up against opposite of order is chaos. Opposite of life is death. Everything on the so-called political left celebrates chaos and death. That's what they're about. Uh, they've never met a baby they didn't want to kill. They've never never seen a marriage they didn't want to disintegrate. They're, they're helping uh, old folks die as soon as possible because, uh, after all, we want to help you die. We want to help uh, give you freedom to die. That's what they're about. Death of people, death of babies, death of culture, death of marriage, death, 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 because of who they belong to. They belong to Jesus said, I've come that they might have life and have it more abundantly. But the glory of God can take care of itself whether the church does our job or not. Now, we have wanted to maintain the trappings of God's presence without the glory of his presence, which is exactly what Israel did. And so after you've read the whole book of Ephesians and the whole book of uh, Ezekiel and First uh, Peter and Second Chronicles chapter 5, 6, and 7, 
Find some time to read 1 Samuel chapters 1 through 5, and you'll see this story in action. You know the story. It's one of my, it's one of my favorite stories, uh, even though it's really full of sad things. It's, uh, we, we, we referred to it previously. The birth of Samuel, as Hannah cries out to God for a child, and God gives her a baby boy who she dedicates to the service of the Lord. He's the the prophet Samuel. And uh, you know the story that uh, in in the time of the disintegration, this is at the close of the age of the judges. It's the closing of the time of uh, of of the judges, which is the darkest time of Israel's history, one of the darkest times. And um, the Philistines take the Ark of the Covenant, which is the throne of God's glory among his people. They take it to their temple uh, and set it before their god, Dagon, the fish god. And uh, in the presence of the Ark of the Covenant, Dagon is knocked over. And they prop him back up, and then he's knocked over again. This time, it knocks his head off. His head off. <laughs> I just, I just love that. And uh, then boils break out on the Philistines, and they start desperately trying to figure out how in the world they they can get the Ark back. But how did the Ark get taken? Well, that's a very important point. How did the Ark? get captured in the first place. Well, if you read the story, I should just let you read the story, but I'm going to tell you anyway and hope that you'll still go read it and get familiar with it yourself. But, of course, I'm assuming you don't know it and you may know more about it than I do. But the point is, Israel was being beaten by the Philistines, so they got the bright idea of taking the Ark of the Covenant into battle with them as if it's nothing but a rabbit's foot. We're going to take our lucky charm, our religious symbolism, into battle with us. Uh, And I I want to say this for the benefit of the many military people who hear this message, who I love and respect. This is one of the things that disturbs me about Americanistic, militaristic celebration of our own prowess. There's a grave danger when we flex our muscles and uh, decree to our enemies our ability to conquer them. Some just trust in chariots, some in horses. But we will remember the name of the Lord our God. David's sin of numbering Israel was, why was that a sin? Because it had to do with this flexing of militarism, military muscle. We will do this by our own power, and our military is in desperate, desperate trouble. Uh, Don't for one minute believe the propaganda that uh, everything's okay. Uh, the, the, The disintegration taking place in the military is of massive proportions. I say that with all due respect to the military. I mean, I'm saying it because of my love and respect for our military our godly military, those in the military who fear the Lord and honor him. But they agree with me. They know the danger. They see the danger. 
they they know the, the the forces of death that love to kill babies and love to kill old people and love to destroy marriages. Uh, the, that's the same forces that are now running the Pentagon. And so uh, they love for our soldiers to die without medical treatment and without care. It's it's by design. It's not just a breakdown. Of, of the system. It is an incursion of willful destructiveness into the system. That's is the difference between somebody having a leak and somebody purposely being flooded. And so uh, this, this is what happens as a result of the loss of the fear of the Lord and the loss of relationship with God as a nation. So more and more you hear about Accidents that are taking the lives of our soldiers or flukes or, or tragedies of various kinds, not to mention the willful things that I just mentioned. Pray for our military. Pray not that our military be victorious as a whole. I don't pray that. I pray that the godly men and women in the military will be salt and light and stand for truth no matter what it costs them. Because I cannot pray for the success of the military of a nation that is in rebellion against God. Why would I pray for success of that which God has cursed? And God has cursed America. We are under his judgment. We are under his divine chastisement. It is a mercy that we are under his chastisement. But be very wary that you don't just pray flippant prayers, oh Lord, God bless America, oh Lord, bless America. Why would, give me some reason why God should bless America. He blesses the America that blesses him. He will not bless the America that exists as in its present form uh, under the influence of the forces of chaos and darkness that we, the church, have allowed to pour in and take over because we weren't doing our job, because we were ready to fly out of here any minute. Now, when they take the Ark of the Covenant, you know the rest of the story. We've already talked about it. But, but the Phil- here's what the Philistines did. When they heard the celebration in the camp of the is- Israelites as they... They got the Ark of the Covenant and they began to hoop and holler and celebrate their, they've got their little religious trapping, their, 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 their little God. See, they're treating the Ark of the Covenant the way the Philistines treat their God, Dagon. They've got him a God they can prop around and prop up and, uh, and manipulate. And so God does demonstrate for them, uh, the fact that he he's not going to be handled by anybody. And the Philistines take the ark. You know why they take the ark? Because they hear the, the Israelis shouting so loud. The Philistines say, listen, they, their God has come among them. And they're, they're strongly encouraged. And so the Philistines fought with all their might because they, they thought they were fighting against Israel's God, and they knew they had to fight harder than ever. And uh, twice more Israeli soldiers were killed that day than the day before, and the ark was taken. Why would God allow the ark to be taken? You can just hear people 
just how, how would how would we think if we were Israelis and the ark of God's presence has been taken by our enemies God has been defeated do you think God's been defeated you think God's been defeated now in America with all the disintegration going on you think almighty God has been defeated <laughs> and we've already stated so I don't need to go back over it though I do enjoy saying it over and over that Dagon head got knocked off and the Philistines got broken out in boils and they were begging, begging Israel, take the ark back. Well, got, you know, the, the pagan world is begging for the church to reclaim the glory of God. They may not know that's what they're looking for. They may not know that's what they're dying to see happen. But they, whatever, whatever in man that still knows it needs something greater than itself, is longing for the church, longing for the church to manifest the glory of God. That's what Romans 8 says, that the whole creation is groaning, waiting, longing for the manifestation of the sons of God, for the glory of God to manifest through, through God's people. But God's judgment is as glorious as God's mercy and grace when it comes to evil celebrating itself. Revelation 14, verses 6 through 8, I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment is here. Babylon is fallen. Now, let's get to the positive side of this as, po as fast as possible, because uh, you know, I, I, I know how cumbersome it gets to have to restate these things over and over but you know you you have to restate them until we wake up to our our true condition then when we wake up from our slumber and we get out of our self-comfort and start really engaging the nature of the battle then god god begins to cooperate again he he, he begins to hear our cries he begins to respond to us uh there's godly military men and women who are praying. They're fighting for the country, all right, uh, on, on their knees. They, they, they've been deprived of the ability to do their job uh, in other ways, but they're crying out to God. And uh, folks, the ones who aren't crying out to God, the ones who really think it's American prowess that's going to win the day, are, are heading for a terrible, terrible rude awakening. And I hear people commenting on, oh my gosh, no, no nation on the earth has the ability to do what we can do. And they start listing all the different uh, acumens of military prowess in, in our uh, accoutrements. Over and over, God demonstrates his ability to overthrow men uh, with one arrow, one one stone from one sling, one happenstance of a moment when the arrow pierces through, the one crack in the armor that's just large enough for an arrow to penetrate. Don't ever make the mistake of taking comfort in America's superior military power. It is a fool's game in the way that we are never to touch the glory of God. Now, we are to touch the glory of God in another way, and that is 
to take hold of the horns of the altar, which is a picture of coming boldly before the throne of grace to find grace to help in time of need. We're certainly to take hold of that glory. And uh, that moves us now to the place that I've been wanting to get us to this whole time together, and that is we're repenting of not being salt and light. We are. There's more prayer going on now, I think, than has ever gone on in the history of the church. And I know it's, it's, a, it's a hard balance to, to, to sound the alarm and, and scream that the house is on fire. Uh, but there does come a time when you stop screaming and you get the alarm sounded and you start fighting the fire. And, and uh, you, you know, I want, us to, I want us to know how to be salt and light. We are willing to be now. We are awake. We are aware. We are repentant. We are uh, embracing our union with the Lord, our, our desire to be with him, our desire for him to come and make his dwelling with us. And we want now to begin to learn how to enter into ruling from Mount Zion. So do you have it in your mind? The book of Ephesians is the New Testament revelation of what the establishment of Solomon's temple was the shadow and foreshadowing of. The prayer of intercession for the restoration of the land after repentance that is laid out in detail in Second Chronicles chapters 5 through 7. That concept of prayer, of, of us standing in the gap and making up the hedge as kings and priests. You know, it says there in Second Chronicles 6, uh, what does that mean? Well, Book of Revelation says we are kings and priests. What do kings do? They rule. What do priests do? They intercede. We, we rule by intercession. Our rows are washed in the blood of the Lamb. We are clothed with salvation. That's what it means. We're, we're robed in his kingly, priestly authority. And the saving hope of the world is in his kingly, priestly authority. Now, the sanctuary the temple of God, the people of God. Judgment begins at the house of God, Ezekiel tells us, and Peter refers to that. Why does judgment begin at the house of God? Because why in the world would God judge the pagans who don't know any better until he first brings cleansing, correcting, chastisement upon his own people who do claim to know? And so the approach of the authority of intercession in the house of God is blocked by our iniquity, our impurity, our mixture. How are we going to stand in the gap if we are participating in the very things that uh, we're praying against? It says in Ezekiel chapter 43, and I'll tell you, there's so much here. I know mo nobody reads Ezekiel. It's too hard to understand. Everybody knows about, you know, the ch chapter 38 and uh, the invasion of Israel and the, the Valley of the Dry Bones. You know, they know a few things there, but very few people ever b try to wade through uh, 
chapter 40, 40, you know, through the end of the chapter. But I think God's getting ready to open these books to us. I think they're going to become very clearly, easily understandable. And this is the Living Bible version. After this, the man brought me back around to the east gateway. Suddenly, the glory of the God of Israel appeared from the east. The sound of his coming was like the roar of rushing waters, and the whole landscape shone with his glory. This vision was just like the others I had seen, first by the Kibar River, and then when he came to destroy Jerusalem. I fell face down on the ground, and the glory of the Lord came into the temple through the east gateway. Then the Spirit took me up and brought me into the inner courtyard, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And I heard someone speaking to me from within the temple, while the man who had been measuring stood beside me. And the Lord said to me, Son of man, this is the place of my throne, and the place where I will rest my feet. I will live here forever among the people of Israel. They and their kings will not defile my holy name any longer by their adulterous worship of false gods or by honoring the relics of their dead kings. See, the spirit of lust and the spirit of death. They put their idol altars right next to mine with only a wall between me and them. See, they did exactly what the Philistines did. They set the Ark of the Covenant right next to Dagon. They defile my holy name by such detestable sins, so I consume them in my anger. Now let them stop worshiping other gods and honor their, and honoring the relics of their dead kings, and I will live among them forever. See the heart of God? He, he's still willing to, to forgive and, and give. Son of man, describe to the people of Israel the temple I have shown you, so they will be ashamed of all their sins. Let them study the plan of the temple. That's what we're doing right now. We're studying the plan of the temple in Ephesians, in Second Chronicles, and here. Describe to them all the specifications of the temple. Tell them about its decrees and its laws. Write down all these specifications and decrees as they watch, so they will be sure to remember and follow them. And this is the basic law of the temple. Absolute holiness. The entire top of the mountain where the temple is built is holy. Yes, it is the basic law of the temple. The holiness of God the presence of God, the glory of God. Now, there's too much here to even touch on. And uh, as I told Mary yesterday, as I began to try to prepare what I thought would be the conclusion of this study in the glory of God, I, I'm just beginning to get started. But what I'm, what I'm focusing on, because what I believe the Holy Spirit wants us to focus on, is that we... Seek the face of the Lord, where the glory of God is revealed in the face of our Lord Jesus Christ, Second Corinthians 3 says. You know, Moses couldn't see the face. God says, you can't see my face, just my afterglow. But now the glory of God has been fully revealed in the face of our Lord Jesus Christ. And because there is now a man on the throne of God who will forever be both God and man, we who belong to him 
can come into our place now, take our rightful place on the throne of God next to the Lord Jesus Christ, seated with him in heavenly places, Ephesians tells us. And we take our place under his rulership to do what? To relate, to reside, and to rule. The purpose is that we might be with him, that we might enjoy relationship with him, but also that we might rule with him. And how do we rule? We rule in prayer. Judgment begins at the house of God, Ezekiel tells us in chapter 16. Peter quotes that. Why does judgment begin at the house of God? Well, for obvious reasons. Why would God judge the pagans who don't have any light in truth if he doesn't first bring correction to those of us who do have light and truth? So God's correcting chastisement begins with his people. We're in that now. God is chastening. If you're, you're, on, if you're in unusual degrees of stress and pressure, it's not because God wants to hurt you. But he wants to wake you up like any loving parent would want to awaken a wayward child in the face of danger. And so embrace that and welcome the, chaste, the, the chastening of the Lord, welcoming the correction of the, of the Lord and the cleansing work of the Spirit that's going on in, in your life. And then take your rightful place in prayer. God is seeking for a man or a woman who will stand in the gap and make up the hedge. He's looking right now for you to do that for America because the judgment that is inevitable can be softened if God's people will take their rightful place in prayer. It can't be stopped. The judgment will not be stopped, but it can be softened. And so what is it that we are to study in the, in the temple? It's what we're studying right now in this very study. It has to do with the holiness of God, the temple of God as the body of Christ built together a holy temple for him to dwell in, and then rulership. Now, in closing, let me just, I'll just have to, I can barely introduce this, and then we'll have to wait for the next time together. In the book of Revelation, judgment begins at the house of God. Jesus opens the book of Revelation correcting his church first in chapters 1, 2, and 3. This is what amazes me about all this preaching that's going on around the country on grace. I thank God for preaching on grace. Thank God for grace. But the idea that God never corrects us, never calls us to repentance because we're in grace is, is utter foolishness. You just have to completely ignore these chapters of Revelation. And it just shows, again, the, the weak, weak condition of the body of Christ in the West and its, its lack of, of scriptural understanding. All relationships require adjustment unless you're perfect. Well, Jesus doesn't have to adjust, but we do. So he does have to call us to correction and repentance. And certainly it's true now in the, in the face of the terrible failure that we have uh, perpetrated in the West, allowing our culture to disintegrate to where it is now. And so we're called to repentance. But 
Then we're called to the unveiling of the unfolding of the close of the age. And it doesn't begin with monsters and dragons and earthquakes and tragedies. Where does it begin? The main point is the throne of God. In chapter 4 and chapter 5, you have 25 verses. The throne is mentioned 14 times in those 25 verses. And in our time next time, Lord willing, we will approach this throne.